0: Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Ark of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we conclude our discussion of the Ed Johnson case. Johnson, as you recall from our last episode, had been killed by a hate filled lynch mob. The county sheriff was acting more like the ringleader than someone sworn to serve and protect. To complete the story, Mark Curridan shows us just how the tragic turn of events of the 1906 legal saga became the seeds for legal triumph in the 20th century and beyond.
1: The second document was a two-page superseding order. Six justices had signed a superseding order about three hours and 40 minutes after the original Justice Harlan order. The six justices and this second order, superseding order was also authored by John Marshall Harlan. And in the second document, it also declared, it also said that it would stay in Ed Johnson's execution. But the superseding order pointed out that Ed Johnson's life was in danger, noting the two prior lynching attempts and newspaper reports. And as such, the Supreme Court declared Ed Johnson a federal prisoner and ordered local authorities to protect him as a federal prisoner pending the outcome of the Supreme Court's decision. Well, that night, several hundred men show up to county jail. They've got guns and sledgehammers and axes. They're going to break into the jail. They're going to kill Ed Johnson. The lynch mob shows up and, of course, the deputy sees them coming, flees for his life. They walked him six blocks from the county jail to the county bridge, the Walnut Street Bridge. They took him out to the second span of the bridge they put a noose around his neck and they said ed johnson there's nothing you can do that will save your life you might as well confess and ed johnson's last words which are on his tombstone to this very day were god bless you all i am an innocent man
0: the supreme court of the united states was faced with a dilemma one never before experienced in its history it held its inaugural session on February 1, 1790, and 13 years later, Chief Justice John Marshall said it was emphatically the province and duty of the Judicial Department to say what the law is. But now, a renegade sheriff, a contemptuous judge, and a band of marauders seemingly were mocking the high court. The New York Times said that no justice on the court can say what will be done but all agree that the sanctity of the Supreme Court shall be upheld. The power resides in the court to accomplish a vindication of the majesty of the law. But the immediate question was just how would the court do this?
1: The next morning, the Supreme Court was informed of the action. Seven justices met in the home of the Chief Justice, Melville Fuller, lived in the Foggy Bottom area of DC. Uh, The seven justices got President Theodore Roosevelt on the telephone and instructed him to send federal agents to Chattanooga to investigate how it happened, what had happened, and who should be held responsible. Two federal agents were sent to Chattanooga. They interviewed more than 200 witnesses. Their investigative reports were more than 2,000 pages long. And what they found was evidence of a conspiracy between the sheriff, his deputies, local officials, and the lynch mob to kill Ed Johnson. first, the Attorney General of the United States, his name was William Moody, he later went on to the Supreme Court, uh, told the newspapers that he was thinking about bringing a murder charge against the sheriff and the other leaders of the mob. The Supreme Court heard about this and called him in um, to the Supreme Court. And remember, this was 1906. There was no federal murder charge, and they pointed that out. He would have to bring the charge under state criminal law. And the Supreme Court pointed out that the judge and the sheriff had been overwhelmingly reelected after the lynching took place. And they said it was almost impossible for you to get an all-white male grand jury to indict, let alone an all-white male jury to convict. Instead, the Chief Justice told the Attorney General, we suggest that you bring an original petition in the Supreme Court charging the sheriff and the others with criminal contempt of the Supreme Court of the United States, giving us original jurisdiction. The Attorney General responded, well, that's never been done before. I don't think I have the authority to do that. At which point, the Chief Justice said, no, what we're telling you you should do is file this original petition in the Supreme Court, giving us original jurisdiction. It was September the 6th. Remember, everything started on January 21st. September the 6th, the Attorney General uh, filed the original petition charging the sheriff, six deputies, and 19 leaders of the mob with criminal contempt of the Supreme Court of the United States. US Marshals were sent to Chattanooga. The individuals were arrested brought back to Washington, D.C., where they were arraigned and put on trial before the Supreme Court. Noah pardon throughout the entire case of the prosecution of the individuals, um, acted as special counsel.
0: On Tuesday, December 4th, 1906, at precisely 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the Marshal of the United States Supreme Court made his usual pronouncement. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. For the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. After the justices took their seats in the grand old courtroom on the second floor of the United States Capitol. The only case on the calendar that day was United States versus Ship.
1: This fascinating trial takes place. Nothing like it in the history of our country. The Supreme Court appoints a special master, a former state court judge who is now their deputy clerk, and uh, sends sends this individual, his name was Mayor, to Chattanooga. They appoint, uh, appoint a special prosecutor Um, each of the defendants has their own lawyer and uh, there's an amazing trial that takes place. There's pretrial arguments at the Supreme Court. One of the most interesting things that happens is that the Supreme Court um, uh, the lawyers for the sheriff argue that the Supreme Court cannot find the sheriff legally guilty of criminal contempt of the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is a federal court and this State of Tennessee versus Ed Johnson, the case in which they issued the stay and declared Ed Johnson a federal prisoner, is a state criminal case, not a federal case. Therefore, the Supreme Court did not have the authority or just jurisdiction to issue that order. And if the order was invalid, the, uh, then then you can't find the sheriff guilty of uh, of, of contempt. And uh, in a unanimous opinion written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Holmes, on December 24, 1906. Um, wrote, no, we're the Supreme Court, and uh, we said we have jurisdiction, therefore we have jurisdiction. And what it says is this court and this court alone, it's a very short opinion, uh, about six pages, and it says this court and this court alone has the constitutional authority to decide what is and what is not a constitutional case. And until those issues are decided, we have the right to reserve and preserve all evidence.
0: Justice Holmes also said, persons having knowledge of our order, creating a mob and taking Johnson from his place of confinement and hanging him constitute contempt of court. This was a murder by a mob and was an offense against the state as well as against the United States and the acts of persons having knowledge of our order constitute contempt of court. The trial of the case will proceed. The contempt trial of Sheriff Joseph Shipp and the other defendants began at two o'clock the afternoon of Tuesday, February 12, 1907 in the circuit courtroom of the United States Custom House. More than 200 people packed the courtroom, most of them having arrived three hours earlier to get a seat. Commissioner Mayer pounded his gavel. Water in the
1: court, be seated. And the trial began. And there's some great witnesses. And we know what happened inside the jail because of some, uh, you remember I said all the women were taken out of the work farm and the men were, other than Ed Johnson, were packed in the cells below. But about 5.30, right before the lynch mob showed up, a woman from Ducktown, Tennessee, neighboring county, was arrested by a federal treasury officer for moonshining while on her honeymoon. Her name was Ellen Baker. But she's in the cell and she testifies to everything that happened that night. The minister testified. Um, So many people testified. Um, At the end of the day, the uh, Supreme Court found, uh, the testimony of each person would be transcribed, sent to Washington, D.C. The Supreme Court then would review it and have any additional questions. The witnesses would be uh, re-sworn in and and ask those additional questions. And um, at the end of the day, the Supreme Court found the sheriff, um, one deputy, and five leaders of the mob guilty. And the other charges were dismissed against the others.
0: In its final order, the court said it was absurd to contend that the officers of the law did not know that a lynching would probably take place. Only one conclusion can be drawn from these facts, all of which are clearly established by the evidence. Ship not only made the work of the mob easy, but in effect, he aided and abetted it.
1: Holmes and Harlan each wanted multiple years. There were two justices who wanted no time at all, and uh, there were four justices that ended up um, issuing the uh, sentence of 90 days, and they served 90 days. The sheriff uh, returned back to Chattanooga after serving his 90 days in the D.C. jail, and he was greeted by uh, by a marching band. And a statute was erected, and uh, he went on and was reelected one more term.
0: What about the trial judge, Judge
1: McReynolds? I covered southern corrupt trials of sheriffs all over the place. You know, a corrupt sheriff in the South, that's a dime a dozen. You know, I mean, come on. Um, but judges, you know, they hold the robe. They've got the oath. They're supposed to stand up. And I really found him despicable. And um, after the book was published, I found a letter um, from uh, Harlan to uh, the Attorney General saying that he made a mistake in not charging the judge as well. Why is this story so important? Between 1890 and 1906, the 15, 16 years leading up to this case, there were 2,200 lynchings that took place, most of them right here in the Deep South. Not a single individual, according to Tuskegee University, was prosecuted or jailed for participating in any one of those lynchings. Not a single individual. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court pointed out that a United States senator from Mississippi kicked off his reelection campaign in May 1906 by leading a lynch mob into a jail and having two men killed. The Supreme Court believed that the rule of law was in danger in our country, in big parts of it. And this was their effort to do something about it. And indeed, we see after this case, numerous other actions take place. And the number of lynchings do decline. Number two, pardon and Hutchins. Uh, They really are amazing individuals. I didn't tell you their homes were burned. Their lives were threatened. Their families all had to flee Chattanooga for their lives. you know they're incredibly heroic but I don't want that part of it to over overshadow the fact that these were brilliant lawyers um they didn't go and I'm not saying anything wrong with an NACDL meeting or an ABA meeting or anything like that but there was no form that they followed no form that they were given no lecture that they went and said hey you should try a federal habeas petition um, Eugene Wilkes at the University of Georgia. I gave him a copy of the original petition when I was working on the book. I sent one to Mike Tiger and one to Professor Liebman up at Columbia. These were three experts on habeas corpus in the history. None of the three had ever heard of the case. Um, They're quoted in the book. Um, Mike Tiger goes as far as saying this was the birthplace of the modern habeas corpus. And he says these lawyers were so brilliant they made seven essential points. All of them, in the seven decades that followed, became the law of the land, all seven. The most recent, being in their original habeas petition, in the federal court and to the Supreme Court, they argued that the jury veneers, the panels from which juries are selected, and these were Noah Pardon's words, should be a representative cross-section of the community. You know, that didn't become the law of the land until the 1970s with Taylor v. Louisiana and Durin v. Missouri and those same words. These were brilliant lawyers. And um, the lesson from it is, is that we as lawyers have extraordinary influence in our communities. We may not invent habeas corpus, but the things we can do to help make this society, this world a better place, even the little things, is extraordinary.
0: Noah Walter Pardon and Stiles Hutchins, two hidden legal figures that changed America. On the next Hidden Legal Figures. He is best known as the author of Lift Every Voice and Sing more popularly known as the Negro National Anthem. Yet, few people know that James Weldon Johnson was also a lawyer. On a hot September day in 1925, Dr. Ocean Sweet and his family moved into a bungalow on Garland Avenue in Detroit, Michigan. They were the first black family in the all-white neighborhood. A standoff occurred. A riot erupted, and by the next morning, Dr. Sweet had been arrested for murder. But People vs. Sweet was no ordinary case. It paved the way for the creation of what would later become the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and James Weldon Johnson was the chief architect of the plan. That and more will be the topic of our next episode entitled, A Legal Renaissance. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast.
1: In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.